I'm Jake Thompson, and this is the Better Than Yesterday podcast. What's up? Welcome to another episode of the Better Than Yesterday podcast. My name is Jake Thompson. I am your host this week and really every week. Uh, Here on the show, I'm the Chief Encouragement Officer at Compete Every Day, and I'm excited you are here. This week's a little bit different as we get to welcome in Ryan Birdman Parrot. But we recorded this episode live at our Compete Every Day Goals Workshop that we held on June 10th at CrossFit Dallas Central. Uh, we spent the afternoon with a number of competitors working through a progress uh, of how to set your goals, um, how to work through them, set deadlines, create accountability, every piece that's crucial to not only having those big goals, those massive things that take a month, two, three months, maybe a year or more to achieve, but how do you set a plan and create a plan to achieve it? So it was a great time. It was in a great conversation. Ryan is a Navy SEAL and gets to share his heart behind uh, the nonprofit he started, Sons of the Flag. And so they're focused on working with burn victims, both civilian and military, and the importance of that, why there is such a need for just the work and development and research in terms of working with burn victims. And Ryan just really pours his heart into the group. It's a great conversation. I think you're going to get a lot out of it. Uh, if just talking about the Goals Workshop makes you a little bit envious, don't worry. We have another one coming up in August. We'll be doing it end of August. Uh, it'll be August 26th in Houston, Texas. More than likely, it's going to be 12 to 4 p.m. That afternoon, we'll be posting details and information at events.competeeveryday.com. Come out. Let's talk about what your big goals are. Let's work together and create a plan on how you can achieve it. It it was a great experience for a number of the competitors that were there. uh, Being able to walk away with not only a tangible worksheet and plan filled out, but also more clarity on what that big goal is and how they can accomplish it. It's great to talk about goals. It's great to think about having big goals. But what matters is taking action toward them. And so Ryan today in the show is going to have some great advice for you as someone that's motivated to be better than yesterday, as someone that has some big goals on how you should go and pursue them. Um, And I think you're just going to absolutely love the conversation today. Uh, But first, let me remind you, if you are loving the show, if you're enjoying the content that we're putting out, I would really appreciate it if you could drop us a review on iTunes Quick and easy, find the show on your iTunes or on your podcast app on your iPhone um, or in the Android Play Store. Uh, Leave us a quick rating and review. It helps other people find the show. Uh, We absolutely love that. If you're just digging every episode, I hope you're subscribed to the show so that your phone automatically gets the new download each and every week. Uh, If you've got suggestions for the show, feedback, things you'd love to hear or guests you'd love us to have on, shoot us a note, podcast at competeeveryday.com. Now that all the boring conversation intro piece is done, I'm excited to welcome to the show, Ryan Parrott. Welcome to another episode, a live episode of the Better Than Yesterday podcast. Uh, Ryan Birdman Parrot is joining me today. Ryan, give yourself a brief 
You don't even have to be brief. You have a hell of a good story. Uh, tell everyone who you are, a little bit about how you got to this point, and then we'll dive in a little bit more on Sons of the Flag. Perfect. Well, I thought you were going to say at the beginning, give yourself a round of applause. So I'll do that okay. for myself. <laughs> Makes me feel good. Uh, thanks for having me, everyone. Name's Ryan Parrott. They call me Birdman. I'll get into that story a little bit later. Um, yeah, it all started in Detroit, Michigan. Grew up in Detroit, actually in the inner city. When somebody tells you from they're from Detroit, you tell them to come to me because I am actually from Detroit, the heart. Grew up in uh, hard schools. Um, grew up with both parents, uh, separated early, and you know I lived with both of my grandfathers. And that's where I really had a first display of what it meant to serve others because both my grandfathers, much like I'm sure everybody here, your grandfather served in World War II uh, or some, storm, uh, some form or fashion of service. Uh, but my grandfather on my dad's side served after service in the fire service for 30 years. And in any firefighter you meet, Detroit Fire is one of the most prominent fire, fire departments in the country, much because of what they're going through with the city. Um, they're just working hard. They're doing a lot for and with a little return. Um, but anyway, so all of this said, you know, growing up and being in middle school and high school, I was a complete failure in everything. I have a book published called Sons of the Flag. And I put my report card in there. Can't believe my dad saved it, but it's pathetic. It's absolutely pathetic. And, you know, I was just, I never was motivated to do anything. Didn't want to work out, didn't want to do anything. I played hockey, played pretty competitive hockey. Um, that's what we do up in the north, you know. And so, but I just never had to drive for anything. And I wonder today, you know, if I would have really put the pedal to the metal, what could I have done with sports? What could I have done academically back then? Um, but I had to change my life later on. 9 11. 9-11 happened, everybody remembers the minute, the place, the feel where you were at that day, that moment. And I was actually graduating and I remember sitting there watching the second tower implode and thinking, okay, I've been toying around with this idea of joining the military. My parents had threatened me several times to go to military school based on my academics, but that was a clear shot. Okay, God's telling you, go do something with your life, go get after it and let's serve others. So I left school that day, too young to join, but um, I tried to enlist in the Navy. My goal was to become a Navy SEAL. I thought, you know, I'd heard a little bit about it. I had a teacher in the Marine Corps uh, who was in the Marines in Vietnam, and he used to say, you know, there's one thing better in the Marine Corps. It's the U.S. Navy SEALs. Back in the 90s, we knew nothing about SEALs. So it's like, okay, I want to do that. And, of course, he made it sound like we live on the moon and we breathe water and all this cool stuff, which they do. <laughs> But at the end of the day, I was like, oh, my God, this is something that I can, you know, I want to do this. I want to know more about it. Finally had a spark or a drive, right? And so he ended up the next day putting a Reader's Digest magazine on my desk. It talked about making of an elite warrior. This guy named Jeff Wright who went through the Marine Corps, got out, and then went to the Navy SEAL program, and they dissected it. And I was fascinated, like so hard but attainable. First time I ever felt in my life like something so hard was actually attainable because he did it. So... You know, it still gives me chill bumps every time I think about it. But anyway, I still have that magazine to today. So I probably got the largest library bill from high school. And they're not getting it back. Um, but I enlisted 9-11 right after. Couldn't do it until I was 18. Um, but enlisted and went to boot camp. Back then, you had to strike for it. So you'd raise your hand when they'd ask anybody want to do special activities. And I did. And, you know, I, I had no idea what I had in the tank. I was, you know, 5'9", 135 pounds soaking wet. I know I'm a lot bigger now. I've grown a lot. That's not funny. Anyway, um, in boot camp, I tried out, I tested, I did all the academic review, I did the board, uh, the physical assessment, and I made it. 
and I got accepted to Buds, class 245. This was in 2003, and I was just completely overwhelmed. You see, I was 19, you know, 19 years old, and I'm getting ready to go to SEAL training. This is incredible. You know, they say you get to see the world when you join the service, and I'm not a recruiter, so don't by any means think I'm trying to recruit (laughs) you here, but you do. I mean, I went right from Great Lakes and boot camp to A school in Pensacola, Florida, and then to San Diego for buds. I'm like, is this how the military works? You just travel from hot spot to hot spot of America, and then the end goal is going overseas somewhere? I'm in. And I'm, by the way, I'm getting paid for this. This is super cool. But I went to buds, and I showed up Wednesday night of Hell Week, class 243. And these guys were cold. They were tired, wet, miserable, sucking it up. And I'm sitting there thinking, it's dark out. I thought I had everything. I, you, know, you, can't, you can't hurt me. I'm 19 years old. I'm awesome. And looking at these guys, and they, you could smell them before you could see them as they were running by. And everyone comes running by, and there's probably a handful of guys left. You know, it's Wednesday night of five and a half days of hell week. So I'm looking at these guys. They got the thousand-yard stare. I'm like, holy cow, this is incredible. And I just, I was like, okay, I don't know if I got what it takes here. I really don't. This is crazy until the last guy passed me. And as he was running past me at that thousand yard stare and then he stops and he looks over at me and he just sticks his tongue out and goes. <laughs> and I was like, okay, there's some life still in this guy. So that was a kind of a first taste of, you know what, these guys are humorous, they're, they're no different than me. Um, a lot of them are stronger than me, tougher than me, definitely not better looking than me, but they have all this cool stuff. <laughs> Another laugh, golly, I'm loving it. But there's so many things that compile what the Navy SEAL community is. It's not just one thing. And it was a really good test at such a young age to learn this stuff. So I started in BUDS. I classed up what they call it, class 245, 2003. And we were set to do what they called a a spring hell week, but it turned into a winter hell, hell week. It was very cold. But this is what drove me and what drives me today is you gotta have your spark. What is your spark in life? And I don't consider myself a motivational speaker or a motivational anything um, or a public speaker. I consider myself a storyteller uh, because I learn from every action that I do now. Everything I do, when I fail or I succeed, I learn from it. And so I tell my story. So going through BUDS and then getting into Hell Week, the first thing I thought was, okay, this is five and a half days long. You're in and out of the drink, the ocean. It's 50 to 60 degree water. You're doing evolution after evolution. I mean, it's like CrossFit, 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 just day in and day out, new set of instructors every single eight hours. They're getting off the bus, drinking Red Bull, getting fired up, getting ready to kick your little butts again. She's like, oh my gosh, how much can I deal with? No watch, have no sense of time except dark light, dark light, except you eat every six hours. They say roughly you burn about 20 to 25,000 calories per day in hell week. It's pretty gnarly. So we're eating constantly. So nevertheless, we start hell week and I made myself a pact just with myself, about my spark. My spark is my mother. My mother is an absolute angel. I truly believe she is an angel on this earth physically to help me get through the hard times because she's supported me. She's always been there for me when I have failed, when I have attempted good things, or when I said, I'm going to go climb to the moon, mom. She's like, I know you're going to do it, sweetie. So I used that and I said, you know what? I'm going to call my mom and I'm going to call my dad after Hell Week and I'm going to tell him that their son's not a failure anymore. He made it. He's going to do something with his life. So we started day one of Hell Week. Starts at about seven o'clock at night. You're laying in a tent, getting ready for what they call breakout. All this chaos of explosions, fake gunfire, just gnarly, gnarly stuff. 
And then you rush out of your tents and you start running over to the grinder where they're spraying you with fire hoses and little hoses and making you do evolution after evolution of push-ups, sit-ups, calisthenics, you name it, we do it. By the way, back and forth to the ocean and back getting that nice salt water and getting sandy, just starting it off to which you will never get dry again. It's awesome. You literally turn into a fish. So I start off day one of Hell Week. I remember 45 minutes into Hell Week, they tell us to get out to the sand. We're getting ready to hit the surf and what they call surf torture. We all interlock arms and we're standing there getting ready to sit about waist deep, maybe knee deep high water and just let the surf just surge over you back and forth, freezing cold and not doing anything to warm your body up. 45 minutes in, the instructor gets on the megaphone and he says, all right, ladies and gentlemen, you've been into hell week for 45 minutes. Do you really think you can keep this level of intensity up for the next five and a half days? I mean, at that point, not to mention I crap my pants. I looked over at my butt. I was like, did he just seriously say that? And you got to find the humor within chaos because it's not going to be fun. So you got to find the humor in chaos. So you know what? No matter what, at any point in time, when you think it's too tough when you're doing a workout and the stuff's getting hard and you just don't think you have another one in the gas tank, you do. Look at your buddy. Look at the fact that he's still going and do it. Crush it. So I looked at him and he's still there. I was like, okay, any day of the week, he might be stronger than me. He might be faster than me. Like I said, he's definitely never better looking to me. But at the end of the day, today, I am just as good as him. And that's what it takes. And I look at him, and he's still there. And then I keep continuing on. And then I look at him again, and he's still there. And then I look at him again, and he's gone. So what do I do now? Do I make my mind up to quit? Do I change my thought process? Or do I continue using that same methodology to get through? Somebody else is going to be right there to interlock arms. Somebody's going to be there to pick up the pace. There's going to be times when I'm down where everybody else is up and it's that balance where we all work together as one cohesive team to get the mission accomplished. It's life. So we keep going. Day two gets harder. You're exhausted. They travel all the way down to Imperial Beach where you can't hear a scream. You can't see us. We're just getting after it. Log PT after log PT after boats over the head, jumping in the ocean, getting cold, wet, tired, miserable. Day three rolls around. You're completely beat at this point. They call it hump day, Right? Well, I didn't get the humor in that because at that point I was delirious. But I'm like, okay, they say that you can't quit on Wednesday because you're halfway there. All right, so now I use that in workouts today and I use that in my life today. Every week, there's going to be a thousand things that come at you that are tough, that struggle or make you think, ah, can I get through this? Get to Wednesday. And then, cool, we're halfway there. I use that in everything. A workout, I'm halfway to the finish line. Cool. So I set myself up little mile markers along the way through life and through every part of life to get me to the next phase. Moving on into Thursday, completely delirious. I truly believed that I saw cobwebs spread across the entire ocean. Everybody's hallucinating, seeing their own things. You hear funny stories. Yeah, I saw a locomotive drive, drive right past our boat. Yeah, we're a thousand yards out in the water. That's pretty cool. And then you see guys like, paddle, Ryan. I'm like, I am paddling. And then I wake up. Oh, is that a dream? It's crazy what you can think. You'll see guys running under the boats, completely sleeping, not being aware of what's going on. Your body can do so much. Your mind can do so much more. You know that. But when you really surge into your mind and figure out, what do I have up here? And then test that theory. That's when you're going to see what this can do. So we keep going into Friday. And I remember getting into Friday. We got time? Yeah, come on. I remember getting into Friday. I was like, okay, I have no idea what day it is now. But then the instructors get on the mic and they're like, okay, so here's the deal. The class before you is getting ready to graduate today. I was like, oh, sweet. That means it's Friday. We're going to graduate today. So because they're graduating today, we need the grinder. So we're going to secure you tomorrow. 
five and a half days into this stuff, I'll believe anything. It's like, you got to be kidding me. It's not going to break you, but how far can you really go? When they keep adding mile markers to it, that is what the Navy SEALs are comprised of. It's that mile marker that we absolutely exceed and crush every single step of the way. doesn't matter how hard it gets. doesn't matter how far it is. We're going to take it to the next level, and I'll talk about a standard a little bit later. So we get to day five. I remember sitting under a boat, freezing my butt off, thinking to myself, I got to hold my spark. I got to hold my pack together and keep that promise. Then we get back to Bud's Beach. We're facing right in front of the ocean. We're looking at it, and they're like, all right, interlock arms, take a foot, step forward, two steps forward, another step forward, playing these stupid games with us. And then they told us to about face. And there was nobody there, not one person, but just an American flag stuck in the ground floating. And I knew exactly what my why was. After all of that that we had endured for that five and a half days, how hard we had worked, how many guys had quit, that is the why. That is the one thing they wanted to show us after all that hard work. This is what we fight for. That flag in the United States of America. That was a pretty powerful moment to me to really understand my grandfathers and every single person who served this country, everybody who believes in the United States of America, and the men and women who have died for our, sacri- for our freedoms, they sacrificed. Got it. Okay. Now I can do a thousand things more. That was all the energy I needed. But it wasn't up yet. And then all these SEALs run from behind the berm up, scream and cheering. All these instructor cadre, guys in uniforms, bling and tridents. It was incredible. And then the commanding officer gets on the megaphone and says, congratulations to you future Navy SEALs. Hell week is secured. And of course, we got nothing left in the tank physically, but we want to jump up. And they said, what is your last order of business? We're like, huh. Well, everybody's, somebody's going to throw out the word, go hit the surf, but I'm not doing it. I'm done with that ocean, at least for the rest of my life, which was not true. But after that, you have to go through your med checks. You congratulate each other. You hug each other. You get fixed up. And then you go back to your barracks where you can sleep it off. And you think you're going to sleep for 15, 20 days. I think I got about 30 minutes of sleep before my brain just started running because it was completely destroyed. But the only thing I could think of the whole time was, okay, I got to run back to the barracks because I got to tell my mom that I did it. And so guess what? I got on the phone and I called my mom and I was like, hey, how you doing, mom? And she's like, hey, sweetie, how are you? I said, I'm hurting. I'm hurting real bad. But I just want you to know that your son's not a failure anymore. He did it. I'm going to be a Navy SEAL. And thank you for everything. I still get emotional. It's the most important thing in my life. It's what drives me every day. So I fight so hard, and I continue to fight. So then I fell asleep, and I called my dad like 30 minutes later. (laughs) And then we continue on, you know, because Buds doesn't stop. You get one week after that of walk week where you just get to wear your tennis shoes, and you walk to every evolution. You get in the pool, and you do some recovery methods, and then you get back into the grind of things. But at that point of SEAL training, it becomes more technical. It becomes more about what are we really here for? Now we've weeded out the week. We started with 186 guys. We went, lost 60 guys throughout Hell Week. And we're just losing guys left and right. Now we get technical. We move into dive phase. We're talking second phase. We are doing underwater, uh, underwater evolutions, both open and closed circuit. Pretty cool stuff to learn. They throw some crazy, crazy twists at you. You have to learn dive physics. You have to learn dive medicine. All stuff that a 19-year-old is capable of handling, well, I wasn't. But look to your left and your right. See the guys that are doing it, the girls that are doing it. If they can do it, why can't I? doesn't mean that I'm better than them, but it definitely means that if they can, why can't I? So we continue. And you move to the third phase, which is all land warfare, assaults, demolition, really, really cool stuff that 
makes you call yourself a frogman. And then you graduate. But that doesn't mean you're a Navy SEAL. You still have so much more follow-on training in order to become an actual Navy SEAL. And then that's not even enough. After you go through BUDGE, you go through SGT, which is another six-month qualification training where you do technical stuff. And then you go to Kodiak, Alaska for cold weather survival training. And then you class up, you go to your SEAL team. And I went to SEAL Team 7 Alpha Platoon. And then that game starts all over again as a brand new guy having to earn it and prove to the guys that just got back from a combat deployment that you've got what it takes to prove to them that you're going to fight as hard as they are and save their lives if it's called on it. It's a hard task. And the funny joke is I was considered a Navy SEAL. I actually became a Navy SEAL, went to the SEAL team, and I'm still not legally old enough to drink a beer. Uh, of course, you can drink out base, though. I don't know if you still can, but it was cool. <laughs> but moving into it, you know, I, I always had this thing where I was, I can't believe I'm living in San Diego, and it felt for me like it was always a vacation to go back home. And I mean back home to San Diego because we train so much. We train so hard across the country in different sectors. We go overseas and deploy for six months at a pop. We're always gunning in the, in the special forces or special operations community to get the hottest spot. You know, you don't train so hard for 18-month workup to go overseas and sit on your butt. We're action guys. We want to get over there, get in their faces and rough them up to make sure that they stay over there and don't ever come here. That's our goal. So we deploy our first deployment, Ramadi. It was Habania, Iraq slash Ramadi, Iraq, 2005. This is when Ramadi was starting to really get hot and heavy. Most of you have heard about Chris Kyle, Dallas guy. It's just unbelievable warrior, uh, very good friend. You know, Chris's platoon was in 06, the deployment right after us. But it was really neat because I was on my 2005 deployment and he was there. And I still don't know why, the, why in the world he was there, but he was there for just a few weeks. And I actually got to meet him and talk to him. And this is before he was the famous Chris Kyle. Um, and he was a lot smaller. I don't know what it is about the teams where they get you bigger. I guess I shrank after service. <laughs> but ultimately, just meeting each one of these guys. And that's the thing is, not only did I get to meet heroes every step of the way, but I got to call them my brothers. That's a pretty cool deal. And they don't tell you that as a recruiter. They just say, hey, sign the dotted line, have fun. But my first deployment was unique. I was a new guy. I was trying to earn my way, trying to prove myself. They had awarded me my platoon patch, which means I'm part of the brotherhood, which is the biggest deal in the world. It's when you're a team guy. But I still had so much to prove to these guys that I had what it takes. And surely I, I want to do that, but do you know? And How do you know anything until you're put in that circumstance? You train for it. So that when it happens, you're ready for it, right? Well, three months into deployment, you couldn't hurt me. You couldn't touch me. I was a hot shot frogman, 20 years old, maybe 21 at the time. I couldn't, you just couldn't touch me, right? That's my mental attitude. And we were coming back from a mission and we were driving down the road, Route Michigan. And that's kind of funny because Route Michigan, I'm from Michigan. Cool story. Um, about three clicks out to Habania and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this extreme fireball ignited and blew my Hummer straight up. And it was the scariest, most violent force of action I've ever felt in my life. And I've rode a bull before in Texas, and it made that, that bull feel like I was sitting right in the seat. This giant fireball collapsed our Hummer, circumvented our Hummer, blew straight through the turret, that's where I was in, and it shot me straight out into the sky. That's why I got my nickname Birdman, is because I went flying. Which is an upgrade because before that there were two new guys in my platoon and I was soup and the other one was sandwich. So it was a super, super awesome upgrade. But there you are, laying in the middle of Iraq on Route Michigan, 
ignited on fire, patting yourself off from being burned first and second degree, shrapnel through your body, and knowing that every single other person at Hummer was way worse than you, and having to answer that call. That's why you train so hard physically, mentally, whatever you do in your life, every single day, you give it 110% because when it calls on you, you got to answer that call. I didn't know that I was going to be ready for it, but I had to do it. And I jumped on my buddy. He was bleeding out really bad. And because we work together as a cohesive team, because of so much training that has gone into it and how we believe in each other, 22 minutes from the time we were blown up to the time that everybody was under the knife getting surgery. And because of that and the Lord, everybody lived. It's a great deal. That's how I got my nickname. That experience, obviously, one, you got your nickname out of it, but the, the burn and that explosion and burn has obviously fueled a lot of what you're doing today. So I want to dive into a little bit of that with Sons of the Flag. But I, the one thing I love that you've talked about that we've gone over all day today is you saw a goal, you set a path, you achieved the goal saw a goal, we set a path, you achieved the goal, and you had accountability because you had your brothers in arms beside you the whole time. If they're doing this, I'm doing this. That's right. If they haven't quit, I haven't quit. And, and with a lot of us, we've had some of those discussions today about the importance of the why in what you're doing, the accountability, having that accountability in what you're doing, and then that pursuit. So obviously, you've taken all that. You, you saw you wanted to be a SEAL, you became a SEAL. You went through Hell Week, you went through everything, missions. Now... Outside of that, let's talk about what that experience being a burn victim has done, what your path looks like now, what you're doing, and how you have that same mindset of see a goal, go get the goal. Sure. Well, you know, I want to start that off by saying something I said I was going to mention earlier, which is a standard. Mm. So, you know, in our community, there is a standard. It's just like anything in life, only we adhere to it. There is a standard. There's a physical standard. There's a mental standard. And there's just a good old boy standard, right? There is a standard for everything. And we fall short of that as civilians on a constant basis, whether it be in a corporation or at church or wherever it may be, we fall short of the standard. Why? Because we don't uphold it and we don't try to crush it. The standard in the SEAL teams is what it is. We have a physical assessment. Everybody can read about it. It's public knowledge. But when I get to the teams, they want to see me crush that standard. So we have certain categories, right? We have like this expert high or excellent or expert expert and then expert satisfactory or whatever. And there's all these categories and we are not required, but it is the unwritten code to crush that standard. So whatever the highest level is, we're going to dominate it. And if my scores are below that standard, that is the highest, then we have failed. Now, let's take that one step further. Y'all are going to have new people that come into this gym. They're going to want to get after it. They're going to get muscles and they're going to get strong and they want to be part of the brother sisterhood. They have to earn it. You don't just show up to a gym and we're like, cool, we're buddies. You have to earn that actual standard. So what do we do? When I get a new guy that comes in the platoon, I'm going to give him a physical standard that was harder than the one that I did. But I'm not going to tell him it. He isn't going to know. And he's going to go believe that he can crush that. And then he's going to go crush that. And when he does, he is that much better than me. Because what do we want to do? We want to leave our next generation better than us. And then he's going to take that same notion and he's going to drive it into the next person to make their standard even better so that now I've been out seven years, the guys today can absolutely destroy me physically, mentally, whatever it is, and better looking. <laughs> they can do that. So set your standards high. And then when somebody else comes in that's looking for a standard, give them a higher one and let them crush it and then applaud them for their efforts. 
I mean, that's along the lines of the goals we talked about today and how they should make you uncomfortable. They should be outside of that comfort zone to where you have to push yourself. And the importance of those goals is the fact that somebody watching you is going to be inspired to go do the same and raise the bar in their own life. So you are setting that standard for what pursuit should look like in life and asking those that are inspired by your actions to do it to another level, whether it's your kids, your friends, your family, whatever that looks like. That's why that story matters. Just hammering home that piece of that's why the pursuit of this goal matters. Well, I didn't, you know, I did nothing special in the service. I really didn't. I mean, we're called special operations. That's about as special as it got for me. I was not on the bin Laden raid or any of this other cool stuff that you've read about. Um, I was just one of the guys, but being around heroes that actually did incredible stuff, save lives, you know, it's unbelievable. But at the eight-year mark, I realized that I wanted to do other things with my life. Um, I could see the op tempo was starting to slow down for us. War was what it was. I just wanted to do other things. So I decided in 2010 to get out of the service. Uh, moved to Dallas, Texas because I heard this was the Patriot state of shooting stuff. And it is. It sure is. But I'm moving here. I was supposed to take a job in concrete, which was unique. Um, do some management position in concrete because I know nothing about concrete nor business, but I'm in. Let's do it. So, but before I came out here, the company was down and they were firing, not hiring. So I took a job in security and I was working with a lot of Fortune 500 CEOs, a lot of their families, uh, risk mitigation stuff. And along the way, I disassociated myself from what we call the brotherhood. I disassociated from the people that mean the most to me in the world. I'm in a different place. I don't know a lot of people. And we didn't have that, you know, breaking each other's balls, as the New York Fire Department would say all the time. They don't have a lot of that um, as a civilian in the corporate sector. So I started to lose my path. I lost my spark. I lost everything. Just, just kind of just lived in my house and really couldn't figure out what to ignite my spark again. Um, and I got really depressed. And, you know, I, I, I stayed depressed for a while, actually. And I quit working out everything that you could possibly do to put yourself in the wrong direction until I had an awesome meeting. I had this interesting meeting. That's why I always love to meet every single person that's in front of me because you never know where it's going to take you. I'm always looking for friends. I love friends. I grew up with not many. I love as many friends as I can have. Just don't put me in the CrossFit gym right now. I got to give me a couple days before you want to do that because I'm not up to the standard here. But ultimately, this specific meeting was with an Army Ranger who was severely burned. He was blown up on his first deployment. This guy's a West Point grad, Army Ranger, very specialized guys. Got blown up on his first deployment. He's just a kid. And it brought me back looking at his disfigurement to the day that I got blown up and the fact that I was sitting there in the field in Iraq, touching my face, thinking about, oh my God, my face is gone. I was very fortunate that it sent a bunch of soot and crap from the car onto my face and it burned me but not to that level. Multiple different levels of burns. Well, bringing it back to that moment and scaring the crap out of me, I realized that he has to live that out every single day for the rest of his life. And so I said, okay, what are they doing for you guys today? And he said, what are you talking about, my burns? And I said, yeah. And he said, look at me. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, brother, I've had 30 surgeries already. This is as good as it gets for me. <laughs> and that pissed me off. We're the United States of America. We could do way better. Because we work so hard for that flag and what it stands for, we got to do something about it. 
Sure, there's incredible advancements in prosthetics today. We can treat gunshot wounds. We can fix a lot of stuff overseas when you get injured. doesn't just pertain to the military, though. we got to figure out what the heck burn care has got going on. So I stayed up all night, grabbed a bottle of Jack Daniels, and just read, searched, Googling, and I couldn't find anything tangible to give them. Say, hey, I found a fix for you, brother. And we didn't have GoFundMe sites back then where I could just say, hey, I'm going to go get a bunch of people. I work with Fortune 500 CEOs. Let's just bring a bunch of money together and help you, buddy. Couldn't do it. So I rounded up a bunch of people that I knew in Dallas, Texas, and I said, we got a guy who's severely injured who said, this is as good as it gets for me. That doesn't stand with me. We're going to figure this out. Who's in? And everybody raised their hand. I said, roger that. So we call ourselves Sons of the Flag. Started in January 2012 to be the resource for burn survivors. Never started this because I was injured. Started it specifically for one man and for one man only. Realize what burn care looks like and how can we treat people that are so injured. I didn't realize that it didn't just affect the veteran or military community, but it affects civilians, firefighters, first responders, pediatric to adult, children who are severely disfigured. And it became my overwhelming passion. I got everything I needed just by serving others. That's why it's all about serving. Serving others, continually serving, serving after service. Whatever you call it, serving others is what gets you, in my personal opinion, the pearly white gates upstairs. But it all gives you an enriched life for the rest of your life. Continue to serve. We started Sons of the Flag five years ago. Had no idea what we were going to do. So we started beating down doors, trying to get into different burn units to talk to them about what they were doing. Oh, we got this guy who's a veteran here. He's coming in the door saying he wants to help out burn care. Yeah, you can uh, donate to our golf tournament. It's like, that's not going to help, and that's not going to fix him. I'm serious right now. Give me five minutes of your time. We walk through your door, and let me discuss what we need to discuss, and I will help you. Whatever it takes, I'll get it done. And in five years' time, we've grown to over uh, 20 states. We're over a million-dollar-a-year charity. We're helping individuals and we're getting ready to start up a program to actually physically fix the burns of these veterans, followed by first responders, and then opening it up nationally. It's an incredible, incredible organization we've put together and it's not because of me, it is because of the team we have. Nothing is accomplished by one. It's all about the community effort. And I truly believe that Sons of the Flag would be a mom and pop shop shop charity today if it were just me running it. I am currently the president of the organization, but we all run it as one. That's how we get the thing done. And we always set a standard and then crush our standard. So it's really important to me. Um, the name Sons of the Flag derives from World War I. It was a poem written about the Civil War, talking about the North and the South fighting against each other. And at the end of the day, coming together as one, the USA. And that's what we're doing. We're bringing key physicians and burn patients together and showing them, hey, there actually is fixes for you. So let's get after it and let's get you taken care of. That's what we're trying to do. And we deploy a lot of different things. We host fundraisers across the country. We host plenty of them here in Dallas. Um, Two big ones, actually. One that's in Prosper and then one that's here in Dallas uh, locally at Highland Park Village Theater, which we can talk about in a sec. I was about to say, yeah. Um, But ultimately, key things that we're doing this year is we're hiring fellows. You see, there are about 450 to 480,000 people that get burned every year, and that's accredited by the American Burn Association. Of those 480,000 people, there's only 120 accredited burn physicians, roughly. That's not enough. How can they possibly help every individual that's injured if there's so so few of them? So we got to plus those numbers up. And for a fraction of the cost of funding research and development, we can hire a doctor who's in their residency 
to become a physician in Burns who can work half the year on patient care and then half the year on research and development. So we've already hired three doctors and we're getting ready to add a fourth to the table, which me, is super cool. Let me ask you this as well, because when we talked at your office, the, the care for burn victims, like there's a time limit, right? Like they have to, as soon as the burn, there's a limited amount of time that they've got to be in and treated by the right physician in order to save certain pieces. Do you, what is that window? They call it the golden hour. You got one hour to start affecting the uh, injury. I'm not a doctor, so I'm just playing one on TV here. But apparently what I've been read in on is you have a golden hour to start triage on the burn. So whether that be shutting down the infection, um, thermoregulating the body, different things that they, these doctors or these EMS guys would do uh, in order to start the triage of the patient, getting them to the hospital. If you don't do the correct care, you're going to have disfigurement and telltale scarring for the rest of your life. And if it's over a second degree into the third degree and worse, um, you're going to be dealing with surgeries and injuries for the rest of your life. It's a life-altering deal. Um, that's why I love this injury and I'm so fascinated by it because it's not one that you can just turn key and click and fix. You have to continually stay ahead of the game and you have to support that patient forever. And I like sticking with stuff. That's the most important thing is sticking with it. So big event we have this year, which is pretty cool. Uh, it's called the Stars and Stripes Film Festival. It's honoring veterans and first responders. We do it at Highland Park Village Theater. It's usually through Veterans Day weekend. This year, we got Chris Pronto, a.k.a. Tonto, from Benghazi, who's coming to speak at our luncheon at Dallas Country Club, followed by an epic weekend of really cool veteran films, much of which you've seen before. But our theory is we can play any movie on the big screen, and we can watch this war video, and you know all the veterans will sit in the back and be like, yeah, that was wrong, that was false, no, we wouldn't have done that. And everybody else who wasn't in that particular op would be like, wow, it's fascinating. Well, why not let somebody actually tell the real story after the fact? So we bring this movie to the big screen. Again, you get to watch it. And then right afterwards, we bring in a key speaker who actually served in that particular conflict to tell you what it was really like. So it's really fascinating stuff. So that's a, a big fundraiser we do that really helps keep the lights on at Sons of the Flag. And when are the, what, what are the dates on that? That's uh, November 10th through the weekend of Veterans Day. So 10th, 11th, 12th. So it'll definitely be up on sonsoftheflag.org so you can check it out. And then follow our events across the country. If you're ever in a different state, and you're looking to just find shelter or you're looking to talk to of the flag or just shop or even get a workout in, you know, you can look on our website and check out our task force leaders across the country. They'll always put you out in a firehouse. You have to deal with the sirens and the noises and the farts. But at the end of the day, you always get a house with us. So and that's what we've really established here is it's not just a team across the country, but it's a bond of men that really believe that they want to segregate themselves from being just normal and they want to be special and they want to help people who deserve the help. So. That's Sons of the Flag in a nutshell. Man, I, I want you to tell the story. So the people that I've shared a little bit about the time we met, the story that stands out to me is the goal you set to jump out of the plane with the other veterans from other wars. Yeah. You got to tell that story because that, I mean, I get goosebumps. I got goosebumps when you told me. And like when I'm telling other people, I'm like, this is like the coolest thing <laughs> I've heard. And so please tell. So during that, that time frame when I was depressed... I was creating all this goofy stuff. I was going to do like this nitro circus on steroids, right? Because I love extreme sports. I love base jumping, skydiving, wingsuit flying, all this stuff. I do all this stuff. I love it. I was like, okay, I want to do something here. And so a buddy of mine who was a Green Beret in Vietnam, what they called the MAGV SOG, was talking about this thing called a daisy chain. And it was this wild jump that anybody who does this is certifiably insane. And I like to consider myself pretty gnarly, but I'm not insane. 
So I was like, yeah, you can have that crap. But I was looking at this picture and I saw these soldiers lined up getting ready to jump. And I was like, you know what? Wouldn't that be cool if we did our first epic fundraiser kind of event uh, as a skydive? And I was like, okay, what's special about that? Is it unique? Let's get some veterans together and let's all jump out of a plane like paratroopers from Normandy. Oh, better yet. Why don't we get a soldier from every war, from World War II to present day? And that's exactly what we did. It was the funniest grand scheme of things. I got everybody from Desert Storm all the way to present day lockdown. And then I'm thinking to myself, okay, I can find Vietnam. Green Beret actually introduced me to the Daisy chain. I was like, you're jumping. He's like, I'm in. I was like, cool. Korea and World War II. Okay, this one's going to be fun. And at the point in time, I didn't even know a Korean War veteran. And then one of my buddies said, hey, there's this guy who lives in Plano, Texas, who is, this, he's, he's serving the Korean War, distinguished service cross recipients, done un- unbelievable things. I'm like, okay, I'm going to call him. So I cold call him. I was like, hey, how you doing? This name's Dick Agnew, Major Dick Agnew. I was like, hey, sir, this is Ryan Parrott. Um, how would you like to jump out of a perfectly good airplane with me? This guy at the time was like 80, 81. He's like, Ryan, I was a paratrooper back in Korea. And I've been waiting over 50 years for somebody to ask me that question. I was like, I'm in. Let's do this. I can't believe it. Lockdown Korea. I was like, okay. World War II, here we go. This one's going to be even harder. And I knew that the people that I knew in World War II, uh, my grandfather and I had passed, so I just started cold calling. And the unique thing, if you ever want to play this game or try it out or just talk to a World War II veteran, they don't care about social media or hiding their names or anything. Go to the white pages and then go to Google and type in World War II veterans. You can find every name and then you can take that name, plug it into white pages, and you will find their address and phone number because they have landlines and then you can call them. So that's exactly what I did, and I called about 40 of them, because every time I called one, they're like, nope, not me, every single time. But the cool thing about that whole deal was every single time, they're like, no, I don't want to do that, but let me tell you my story. This was the first time that World War II guys and girls wanted to step out and finally tell their stories. So I documented them all. So I was like, these can never be lost. And then finally at mile 40, or soldier 40, I was like, okay, dude, I'm failing here. So I called the VFW in Detroit, and I was like, hey, guys, here's the task. You got two hours. Find me a World War II veteran who wants to jump out of a perfect good airplane. They're like, are you kidding me? I was like, just get it done. All right, give me an hour. I get a call back in 15 minutes. A guy named Peter Bielskis was a B-17 ball turret gunner, 27 combat missions. It's like an 85% attrition rate or some crazy number of them when they died overseas doing the ball turret gunning. And he did 27 successful combat missions. So I called him. I said, how you doing, sir? This is Ryan Parrott. He said, well, hi, I'm Peter Bielskis. I said, I heard that you might want to make a jump out of an airplane with me. He says, well, (laughs) uh, uh, whatever you think. (laughs) I said, well, I think you should do this with us. And I told him the story. He's like, all right, let's do it. So we flew him from Detroit. And I remember standing there on the drop zone. We did a new generation and then an older generation. So it was Desert Storm, um, 9-11, uh, FDNY firefighter, because I believe that was a war that we don't talk about nearly as much. It really was a war, and it was a war fought on our country. So we had Desert Storm, 9-11 firefighter from New York, uh, Iraq, and Afghanistan, and then a new guy who was brand new into the service. And then the second load was all the older generations. So that was the Vietnam, Korea, and World War II. And so they get ready to get up in the plane. I'm like, this thing's got to happen. It just has to happen. Everybody's excited. Dick Agnew, major Korean war. It's like, I'm in. Get me up there. Do I need somebody to jump with me? Yes, sir. (laughs) 
And then World War II, he's like, I'll tell you what, if I could find a getaway car, right about now, I'd take it. I said, I'll tell you what, humor me. Just get up in the plane, go for a flight. We're flying in a DC-3, which is a World War II plane. Just go for a flight. If you don't want to do it, you don't have to do it. And I remember looking up in the sky, and we worked with the Golden Knights, the Army's jump team, the Golden Knights, and there's a ground guy, and there's, I knew that Korea was going to go, and then, of course, Major Dick Agnew, he jumped, and I saw his parachute spark, and I was like, okay. And then I'm not seeing anything else, and I'm like, oh, we got to complete this mission. And they're starting to get out of the box when it's a good time for him to jump. And then all of a sudden, I look down at the drop, the drop zone jump master, and he, was, he looks at me, and he goes, two, good. And then I look up, and I see his parachute pop. And I was like, there it is, a completed story. And it was the, the coolest fundraiser. We didn't, we, we, didn't th- we didn't raise any money then, but we thought we were going to have 10 people show up, and there was over 500 people at this drop zone in the middle of nowhere wanting to see this iconic thing. And that's what we do. We do iconic events. We don't just do cookie-cutter events. Everything we do is with a passion, with a purpose, and it's always obtuse. I thought I was so riveted by the story of the legacy skydive, what I called it, so I wrote a book called Sons of the Flag. It's about the one thing we all miss when everybody writes books. We all write books about what we do, how cool we are, whatever it is, and I'm not cool, and I, I try to do as much as I can, but it just always seems to get cluttered. It's about why. It is about why we do what we do every day that keeps us going throughout our entire life. So if we could be fortunate to live to be 100 years old, why do you do this every day? So I answered the question. And when I answered the question, I felt like a hypocrite because now I'm answering the question for every person who has ever served our country, past, present, and to be a future. So I went out and recruited each one of those guys. And I said, we made a jump together. You're World War II. You got called randomly to go jump out of a plane in a completely different state. You didn't even know who I was, but when I said it was for a veteran or first responder cause, you stepped up to the plate because you continually serve your country until you die. That is what it's comprised of the American spirit. We continually serve. So I asked each one of them their why, and that's what my book is. It is, I'm a narrator, and each one of them, it goes in chronological order back through all the wars and letting them tell their story of why they do what they do. So pretty cool stuff. And then, of course, at the end of the book, y'all have to buy a coffee to read it. (laughs) Dude, I love this. And this has been just, I love your story. I love just the passion behind it. And everything you've shared today is so applicable to everything that we've done this afternoon before you got in here about the why. And then seeing a goal, even if it's a crazy goal of having veterans from all these wars jump out of a plane like you saw it and you went after it. One, how can everybody in this room, if they're interested, learn more about Sons of the Flag, get maybe dialed in to the events you have coming up? And then two, for a lot of the people in this room, they've written down a goal they want to pursue. They've started outlining that to take action over the next week, two weeks, month, year. What advice would you have for them in that pursuit? Mm, It's a good question. Really good question. Because I guarantee everybody sitting in a CrossFit gym are self-starters and motivators. So really, it's hard for me to tell you all, hey, get motivated. However, this is what I'd say. For Sons of the Flag, go to sonsoftheflag.org and just check us out. Go through the website. And I don't know how much time we have because we talk about Bird's Eye View Project a little bit after. Uh, But go to Sons of the Flag and just learn about it. You're doing yourself a service by learning about what we do. Because if somebody that you know or you or somebody you don't know gets injured and you can make that connection, you might have just saved a life. So learn about it. If I asked you to raise your hand if you know about burn care and what to do when somebody gets burned, how many would raise your hand? Just show hands. One person. So do you work in the burn unit? My father's a paramedic. Father's a paramedic. Awesome. 
So that's the problem. We have so many people who don't know. And so just do yourself a service. Go check it out. Learn more about burn care because it actually happens. And I guarantee you, you're going to walk away from here and somebody you know in the future is going to get burned. You're going to be like, holy crap. So check out sonsoftheflag.org and just keep following and keep tracking what we're doing for our events. Come to our events. Everything we do is, a, you know, an event fundraiser. Uh, it doesn't cost an arm and a leg to come. You get to see some pretty cool stuff. We do some dynamic stuff as well. Um, and hopefully we can interest you in uh, joining the team and just spreading the word. That's the biggest thing we need is awareness. People don't like to talk about burns. So, and bring burn survivors to the table. You meet them, bring them to us. Call my cell phone personally, I'll take care of it. So, that sounds the flag. As far as your goals are concerned, I am a guy who loves to set the bar really, really high. And, you know, from my, my mother and my father to my dad, or to my wife, um, they always say, okay, you're absolutely ridiculous. You set these crazy, unattainable goals. Um, but I surround myself with a team and we actually crush these goals. And there isn't a goal that I haven't gone for yet that I haven't absolutely attacked and crushed. It's not because it's impossible or I'm unique. It's because we go for it. Don't ever leave anything on the table. The way I got through SEAL training was simple, and it's much like most guys that get through the program. Set yourself a goal. Whatever it is, it could be hard. It's like Hell Week. If I thought about Hell Week all five days long at the beginning of it and what we were about to endure, I'd have quit right on the spot. It's too much to bite off on. So set yourself an unbelievable task throughout the year and then give yourself little mile markers throughout the year to get to it. I used to think about the week as a, as a whole and say, okay, if I think about a Friday on a Monday, I'm screwed. If I think about a Wednesday on a, fr on a Monday, I'm screwed. What if I thought about the evolution at hand that I'm in and focus on that and crush that? If you attack one evolution at a time and then move on to the next once complete, imagine where you're going to go by Friday. And then you've earned your weekend. And I mean, the biggest thing for me is you all are motivated, you're self-starters. So the big thing for you is going to be a balance. You're going to set these attainable goals and you're going to crush them. But you're going to work your butts off to get there. Where's the balance in work? There isn't any balance in work. You've got to throw balance in the mix. So I crush a small goal. I balance it out with some fun. I crush the next second goal. I balance it out with some fun. And find that chaos. It's like being a biker or a Lance Armstrong. I don't know if you guys have any hard strings towards Lance <laughs> after the whole deal. Let's just say pre-Lance, whatever. You know, when he's in Trek team, they have a cadence, right? And there's something that I didn't understand until I started biking. But they have this awesome cadence where no matter what, they know they're their dials. So every time they're riding and then the second they hit that, that hill, they've already changed gears to where that cadence stays the same the whole time, doesn't change a thing, and then they can dynamically attack that hill. Nothing changes. Me riding the bike, though, I'm like, okay, whoo, 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 everything changes. So find that cadence in your life through these goals by absolutely implementing the balance in it. That's what I would say to you. If it weren't you, and you needed some help on motivation or getting to that next goal, I'd say your standard's not high enough. You need to raise it higher because you can do absolutely more than you think. That's my personal personal takeaways from... Dude, I love that. Thank you incredibly for joining us today, man. This has been a lot of fun today, hasn't it? That's it for another episode of the Better Than Yesterday podcast. Thanks for joining us this week. I, I appreciate you as a listener. I appreciate each member of the Compete community, and I'm glad that you tuned in this week, and hopefully you found some value in what we shared and who we brought on and just the, all the types of content we're out sharing. So if you got feedback, 
Like I said, shoot us a note directly to podcast at competeeveryday.com. Connect with us on social media. Say hi. Tell us you found the podcast. We love connecting with new members of the community. We want to welcome you. Uh, We want to find ways to connect you and equip you with ways that you can be better than yesterday. Have a great week.